This is a conspiracy. That's what this is. One big damn conspiracy! And everyone's in on it! I know what's going on. Did IQs just drop sharply while I was away? person is smart. People are dumb, panicky, dangerous animals, and you know it. Did you see the memo about this? Just when I think you couldn't possibly be any dumber, you go and do something like this. Don't you see what this means? Well, g'day, guys. Today I'm dropping my guest appearance on the Hawkett podcast with Amit. Just a little get-to-know-you type of interview with him where he asks questions about myself, some stuff you probably would have heard of before, maybe even some new information. Anyway, you get to know me a little bit better, and at the same time you get to hear a great podcasting person out there, a great personality. He's had so many great people appear on his show. I really encourage you to go out and check out his work. Uh, Anyway, I hope you guys enjoy. Welcome to another episode of Hockey Podcast. Today I have teacher and podcaster Drew from Your Missing the Point Podcast and the Homeroom Educating Educators Podcast. How's it going? Yeah, good, mate. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Not a problem at all. I'm glad we could work some times out. I know. It's it's. I was like, when am I going to get Drew on? I've been. I saw you went on Ellie's show from Speed Months Podcast. So I was like, he's finally coming on my show. I'm excited to talk to him. <laughs> So let's start with your podcast, your two podcasts. What is your Missing the Point podcast and the Homeroom Educating Educators podcast about? Uh, so my podcast, You're Missing the Point, is pretty much similar to what you do. Um, I just interview people, get people on I think are interesting and people I'd like to talk to. Um, sometimes I think it's a bit selfish, but I just developed my podcast as a means to talk to the people that I've been listening to throughout the crazy years of COVID that gave me some entertainment and some enjoying my life. And it's given me that outlet now to chat to people and have my voice out there. So it's more just an interview platform. Um, maybe some few deep dives on things that I find interesting in the world of conspiracy or in the world in general. And then the homeroom educating educators is more of an educational podcast with a set purpose of trying to support families in either navigating government and private schools or helping them, actually pull their children out of that system and go into a home uh, home style education of homeschooling where I'm a government teacher, my listeners would know, and my lovely host, Kaylee, she's a homeschooling parent who taught in a private school in the past. So we've got that wide, wide breadth of knowledge that we think we can help people out and being from two different continents, a male teacher and a female teacher, we think we've got that lot really good spread of our diverse opinions and ideas on how we should approach education. So when did you get started on both shows? Uh, you're Missing the Point started, I think it was March or April of last year. And then the Homeroom Educating Educators, we only started that at the tail end of last year, really. Um, Kaylee and I, Kaylee, if you don't know, is Moral Bob's wife. She's the Mrs. Moral Bob. And we became good friends also. And we thought of an idea of just running our own show because we're always chatting anyway. And it seemed like something that was too good not to put out there. 
So did did anyone inspire you to create your own podcast? Um, my favorite podcast has always been OBDM, our big dumb mouth, and I really like their platform where they've got the, the group of three guys that talk, and you've got. One one who's really sorry, my cat's there. <laughs> uh, I noticed you've got the exact same cat as well, Tabby. Um, <laughs> never work with children or animals, and I've got both. <laughs> sorry, um, yeah, OBDM. So you've got Midnight Mike, who's the really conspiracy um, ended guy that I really align with. I love the stuff he researches and does. You've got Joe, who's really very geopolitical minded, and he's really got his finger on the pulse of what's happening politically in the world and in America. And you've got Cretchen, who's just a walking encyclopedia of knowledge. The guy's fantastic. So I started off with those guys. And just from listening to them, it was the filtered suggestions through the algorithms of how I got onto like Great Deception Podcast, Ryan Dean's Dangerous World, uh, Moral Bob, of course, who I'm good friends with now, Andy Rouse, all those people. I don't think there was any one single inspiration for doing it. It's probably a collective of seeing what all those great things other people are doing and trying to emulate that myself. So what's it like being a podcaster after almost a year now doing it? Um, yeah, I don't know. It's a bit surreal. I'm, I'm finding it, it's hard to manage time-wise being located in Australia with the time zone differences and working five days a week as a teacher. The only times I can actually record are my Saturdays or Sundays. And I find if I, I try to target those dates in advance, it works well, but I really lose the opportunity of doing things on a whim with people, which is which is a bit annoying, but it's just the, the reality I'm in living on the other side of the planet. So uh, what are your plans for the future for both shows? Uh, my show just to keep continuing to interview people, um, just grow the podcast as, as it can. I'd like There's a few people I'd love to get on that are, are big ticket people for me. I'd love to get um, Ricky Verandas from Ripple Effect. I'd love to get on um oh my goodness mental blank so ricky Verana's ripple effect podcast i'd really like to get some of the other big name podcasters on that that i think a big name and i listen to um as for the homeroom just continue to keep hitting that try to get an episode out once a month really try to cover set areas of educational content um like like uh, literacy numeracy uh types of ways of addressing your children's concerns in schools, just anything that can help people out. So what was one topic or event that changed your perspective on the world? Oh God, COVID, 100% it was COVID. Uh, the years that the, the, the world was afraid of the air, which was, <laughs> I'd always, and I think a lot of listeners have probably heard this a million times, so I apologize to them, but I don't know if your listeners would have yet, but go away. Cat again, sorry. Um <laughs> So COVID kind of came into to the world and for the longest time I would have classified myself as right-wing conservative traditionalist voter, just person living my life. And I never actually thought as much as we had socialist governments in power in Australia from time to time, I never thought it would go so totalitarian and new world order so quickly. And seeing that happen within Melbourne and then all of Victoria and across Australia really opened my eyes up to what was going on. So how was it like during the whole COVID thing in the last three years regarding like the whole government issues and stuff? Were you guys on serious lockdowns? Yeah, um, Melbourne and Victoria particularly, my state had the hardest and most harsh lockdowns of anywhere in Australia. So we had, essentially it was like prisoner rules where we had an hour of rec time a day where we could go out for exercise. 
We had uh, kilometer limits on how far we could go from our house. So if your local shopping center was outside of that kilometer limit, you had to have things delivered to your house. You couldn't actively go out and get it. That hour of exercise, which just seems so obscure. We had curfews at night where you couldn't leave the house at 9 p.m. because I was so worried about people catching up after hours. Um, helicopters checking over neighborhoods, drones telling people to leave the beach if they're out the beach when they shouldn't have been. Really just what you would think 1984 would look like if it was in the real world, if it was a live, a live, uh, live action movie. Mm. So what are some famous things to do in Australia and eat? Uh, so one that's <laughs> internationally is a bit of a faux pas is Vegemite. Vegemite's absolutely the best thing you can have on toaster and bread. It's like Moral Bob. I sent some to Moral Bob in like a Christmas hamper for them. And half the family loves it. Other half of his family absolutely hate it. They likened it to being like a soy sauce spread that you can put on things. It's it's really good. I love it. So there's that. Other Aussie foods, um, pavlova, which is like a, a fluffy white um, cake that you have cream and fruits and stuff on. Seafood, really big in Australia because we're surrounded by the ocean, but... Yeah, anything that you could uh, Google search Australia-wise would probably come up as the exact same stuff. Do you guys eat kangaroo? We do, yeah. You can actually buy kangaroo in our shops. Not allowed to hunt them because they're a, a native species, unless you're indigenous, but you can buy it at the shops. Okay, so that's kind of weird. So you can eat kangaroo, but you cannot go hunt and kill them and eat yourself. That doesn't make sense. Yeah, well, if they're protected species. We have a very, very strict biosecurity act where unless you're an indigenous persons or uh, traditional landowner you can't actively hunt or eat any of our native species so what's your opinion on the australian government after the last three years uh i'm i'm i've completely turned i'm a i would consider myself a uh an anarchist or a a non-government based person which is a very weird place to sit in when i work for a government department (laughs) but i honestly don't think the government is has ever done anything in a positive light for people. There's always a negative aspect to it. They might bring things in that look shiny and great on the surface, but once they're actually installed later on, they become very noticeably. It's a detriment to society. Um, as Ryan Dean says, the government's trying to kill you. And if you don't realize that, I don't know how to help you out. Uh, he's absolutely correct. Like the whole, I don't know if you heard about the whole Ohio train derailment here and all the trains that have been uh, supposedly getting an accidents. I believe what they're going to do with that whole thing is they're going to people we're going to have a climate change lockdown and going to make us lockdown again because of all the toxins that are in the air. Yeah, and it seems like it was almost pre-prepared in a lot of ways because I've been to the states and even as far along as when I was in the states when I was 21, so quite a lot long while ago now, your infrastructure is absolutely abysmal. Your <laughs> electrical infrastructure, your roads, um, your train, your rail systems are absolutely shocking. You've got boxcars, trains, rails that are about 30 to 50 years out of service that need to be done. And like the end of last year, I believe your rail workers union were actively protesting, trying to get these things changed and fixed. And lo and behold, you've had about six different derailments within a week. Uh-huh. But they, I believe they did it on purpose. So they can, like, yeah. so they can like um, uh, put a shock to the whole supply chain issue that we're already having. Yeah, it's almost like if they neglected the system for a good 10, 20 years, there's going to be natural uh, outcomes that don't benefit society, but they can blame it on it not being taken care of and not actually acknowledge that they didn't take care of it in the first place. 
Yeah, this says that Cal- I'm from California, so is literally what you did explain is literally what is going on here in California. Our roads are bad, our train system is really bad, and everything else, like general population, like homelessness, is like horrible down here. Yeah, I noticed the same thing with DC as well. It was like I likened it to The Walking Dead. That you Washington DC, it was really great during the day, and you could see all the monuments and everything. And then as soon as it became dark, there's like a click of a finger, and all the homeless people started shuffling out of the shadows. It was like the, the zombie hordes coming out. It was quite crazy. I didn't realize that homelessness was so bad in America until I'd actually visited. Oh, it's gotten a lot worse. I remember like around 2015, it wasn't that bad, but after like 2016, like where I'm, I'm from the San Fernando Valley, so it's gotten a lot bad. Like. I have a metro station, like literally like five five blocks away, where we have the uh, buses come to take the pedestrians to their location, whatever they need to go to, and their camps like already there. Yeah, I think I heard numbers not that long ago that the homelessness in New York City, in particular, had a number so high it was actually more than the population of regional Victoria. So there's the capital of Melbourne and all the people that live in the country were smaller in population-wise than the homeless of New York City. It was actually quite crazy. Yeah, but here's another thing. I've learned that half of the homeless people that come into California are not California citizens. They're from other states. So they're having overpopulated homelessness. Some like, for some reason, they get freebies here. So the homeless people are like, okay, let's go to California. So it's warmer generally all year round as well. It's quite temperate climate. So you don't want to be living in Nebraska or somewhere where it's um, absolutely freezing and cold. And as a homeless person, you want to be somewhere where it's nice and warm, right? That's true. So do you believe that politicians use ethnicities as a tool to push their own political agenda on people? Ethnicity, sorry? Yeah, ethnicity. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it's been that that card they've been playing for centuries that... Human beings, because we're so broad and diverse in our appearance, our culture, everything about us, it's very easy to put someone in a box. And because it's so easy to put someone in a box, you can other people really easily. And this seems like a left-wing kind of statement, which sounds a bit wishy-washy, but it's absolutely true. If you other someone, you make them less than what you are. It's very easy to put someone in a group and then they're no longer considered what you are or what you identify with, so you can dismiss them completely. We're seeing that right now where we've got this big pro-LGBTQI plus community and everything that goes with it, which um, homosexual people had fought for rights for the longest time. And now I see that as being an absolute affront and slap into the face to what those people put up with. We've got all these crazy things going on with like 36 different genders and social Marxism being pushed on kids in school. And all it's doing is it's making the 99% look like the others. They're putting the majority of people into a box of, if you don't agree with us because of this one point, you're a bigot. So you're in the bigot box. Or if you don't agree with us because of this, you're a homophobe. You're in this box where it's so far from the truth. It's 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 crazy. And then you throw race into it. It's exactly the same thing. Throughout history, races and ethnic groups have been put into boxes, made scapegoats and, and used by the ruling elites to push the middle class and the poor against them so that they could detract away from what they were actually doing. Mm-hmm. Well, great example is the whole BLM movement here. They were pushing that with the black people and a lot of the uneducated black people were falling for it while the smart ones were like, yeah, this is like completely going against our thing and like they're dragging us under the bus. Yeah, so and we can actually... So, so people can go like target them. And it's nuts, isn't it? Like we live in a time where 
actual African-Americans be, can be called racist towards other black people. It just doesn't make sense. doesn't pass the pub test, as we'd say in Australia. If you were to tell someone in a pub that story, they wouldn't believe you. Like we had, we've got black people being called Uncle Toms because they've got conservative views. When clearly a lot of the time, like you said, unfortunately there is a big breadth of education or lack of knowledge, really. Education can go to one side, lack of understanding, we'll call mm-hmm. it. People who have a lack of understanding of how the world really works can be easily manipulated. And I think we definitely saw that in George Floyd. Um, and to, and recently we had what I would consider worse than George Floyd, where the African-American man was beaten to death by five African-American police and nothing happened with it. Like, oh, yeah. really? That was far worse. You would think that cities would be burned down over that, but nothing happened. And they just got acquitted for no charges today. So. <laughs> You can't make it up. Yeah, those five cops are. I think it was five or four cops. If I could be wrong, they didn't get acquitted. They got. They didn't get charged for anything. Now you have to ask, where's the where's the consistency then in the American law system? You had one cop who had his knee on the guy's neck. Yeah, for right or wrong, he was found guilty. The other cops around him who were watching were also found guilty via association. So why weren't five people who literally beat someone to death found guilty for it? Yeah, I uh, the, I don't know how the how is the court system in Australia? Is it uh, we have a, like is it corrupt like it is here? Oh, absolutely. Um, our judges in the past have even when prominent reporters or politicians speak out against what's happening within court systems or or question certain judges, the judges have the ability and the power in Australia to put caveats and on these guys even speaking or saying anything under the risk of going to jail. So essentially, our judges really run the country, and if they wanted to, a judge could quite easily dismantle and remove someone from power. Interesting, because it doesn't go on here. I don't know who runs the country in the USA, but the judges don't do that. Judges are just for the law law and handing down their sentence of what the criminal does. Yeah, um, even I think even in, as you would know, how Trump appointed his own judges to the Supreme Court that... There's definitely politics in judge in judge and law as well. Like judges, they're not biased from anything. They've got their own form of bias. So naturally, whoever's in power puts their people in place and that drives agendas and drives policy. Regardless who, of whatever government's in power, their agenda's going to be pushed. And usually it's not to for the betterment of society. It's for the betterment of their own pockets. They exactly. line their own pockets. Exactly. And that was see, people see don't understand that you're supporting any high authority figure who is not going to help you at, in the long run. They're only out for your money and how much power you can give to them. Yeah, and we're in a weird time where we've got bureaucracies where these people like Biden or some of our politicians, they're lifelong politicians. They don't have serving term limits. They might have four or eight years to be a president or a prime minister, but then they, they go back into their position as a state governor or a, a representative. They're constantly on the gravy train of in government money and politics. I've got a name for them. I don't call them parasites. They they are people that use language and they talk the whole time to get what they want. So I call them languicites. Using language to feed off society. Yeah, that's I don't. I uh, this is what woke, that was. That's what woke me up with a lot of things. Like politicians don't really care, but people in general public don't don't really listen to that. Like your politicians are not going to do anything for you. No, and it's proven time and time again throughout history. When has politics or politicians or any government actually stuck to one of the promises? They have campaign promises the whole way through, and people vote on them based on their promises. 
as far as I'm concerned, they've entered into a social contract that they will at least try to do what they've promised. And when they get in, they just say, oh, I can't do that because there's reasons of the economy. So as far as I'm concerned, they lied to the public to get a vote, which in my my theory and understanding should be there should be a re-election for people who felt lied to and their vote wasn't actually cast in a proper way. Get them out, put new people in. I agree with that. That's what needs to happen here. We have too many corrupt pe- people in in the government. Yeah, it's, and it's everywhere. It's not just the government leaders themselves. It's they stack every single department and office with their own people. We call it jobs for the boys in Australia. You get your mates a job, right? So often it'll be, okay, I've been the minister for, say, education for the past 15 years. And I have an assistant in my office. Well, my assistant's been doing a really good job. So we're going to put them forward to run for a district in parliament the next election. And they get in. So they've already been in a government job for themselves for like 10 years. They get into government and it's a repeating system. They just keep snowballing us like-minded people, the little yes-men of society, and it just keeps going. That's why I don't think government actually works because there's no true representation. I agree with that 100%. And not even government, just in like business aspect, you have like a CEO, let's say a CEO has like a daughter who is in like the lower region area, he'll just have her replace him or her later on when he retires. Yeah, it becomes like a hierarchy of control. It's just passing it down to the next um, person alive in the line. So how is the medical system in Australia? Uh, we, we have, we, you would compare to yours as being a socialized medical system. For the most part, it's entirely funded by the states um, and federal government. So in reality, we do have wait times in our medical system. We've had multiple code um, browns, which would be, I think it's a code, a code brown, where there's a wait time on ambulances. So there's a, a ramping of ambulances of patients that can't get into hospitals because there's no beds. When in reality, it's not a lack of number of beds, it's a lack of nurses to actually man the beds. So we've got a shortage of nurses, shortage of doctors, shortages of paramedics, that it's compounding to the point where if it's not managed correctly, the system will collapse very soon. And that was a reason they backed the whole, we have to lock down because the system can't handle that many people in hospital from the cough. And it gets worse and worse every year. And the government seems to throw more and more money at it every year for the same results. It's the, the, it's the epitome of insanity. So is it true that your country has never had a mass shooting because of the government because the government took your guns your firearms away? Yes and no. So the mass shootings prior to Port Arthur, which is the mass shooting that had our firearm regulation heavily impacted, there were mass mass shootings, but anything over five people was considered a mass shooting. So naturally, in that you have um, underworld and gangland figures in shootouts killing each other. That was the predominantly what happened. They even classified murder-suicides as mass shooting at one point. So some of the mental illness who killed their wife and then shot themselves, they classified that as being a mass shooting. So the statistics were always overblown anyway. This mass shooting Port Arthur happened, mass shooting air quotes. If you haven't listened to it, go back and listen to the episode I did with Ghost from My Third Eye podcast. Very eye-opening for Americans and Australians who haven't heard it. That happened. Our regulations came in, but shootings still exist. And even to this day, all the shootings that occur are not linked back to registered firearms. So the the good people who do the right thing, like myself, who have a license, go to the range, uh, have a just to join a shooting club, do all those right things, have their name on a register when they buy a firearm. We do the right thing, 
And firearms that are brought into the country illegally that are often illegal firearms based on their category, they're used to commit crime. And the government conflates that, the criminals who use, the criminal element uses firearms with the law-abiding citizens. And it's just a perpetuating system where they're literally trying to chisel away and take down all the firearms we have. They're literally doing the same thing here in the States. That's literally what they want to do. Everything you, you just explained is literally exactly what they're doing here. Like we have yeah. had mass, we have had mass shootings since like I think 2016. I could be totally wrong with the date, but they've been targeting like American citizens who are gun owners. It's like, oh, give your guns away because you're the ones are causing all the sh- mass shootings. But they're not looking at the person uh, and how his mental health uh, mental health illness is and all that stuff. And I also believe half of the shootings that happened here were under the CIA. Absolutely, um, Port Arthur, in my mind, even though they were very real casualties and people died as horrible as it was i don't think it was the person that they made it out to be and there was definitely intelligent or special forces um, at work but now we're starting to see a shift in australia where they're not going the usual template of create a shooting here's the solution take the guns away now they're going preemptively in western australia which is to the west of victoria i'm on the east coast that state is putting a bill through to remove any firearms that are considered high caliber air quotes based on purely the threat that it poses to to police helicopters, police vehicles, police body armor. Now, the issue being anything a 223 or over can pierce body armor, can pierce cars, can pierce helicopters within the right range. Furthermore, they're trying to say Australia doesn't have wildlife large enough to justify having high-powered firearms, but we have introduced deer species in this country that that are hunting. I hunt deer in Australia. That's what they're used for. We need higher caliber weapons to hunt these animals where the Western Australian government's putting in the, there's no animals to hunt, so you don't need it. And there's too much of a clear and present danger to government authorities to have these firearms in circulation. So they're preempting it. They're not even creating the situation. They're just saying too dangerous. You can't have them. Hmm. Well, then, yeah, the government's doing a great job with that because then the citizens will, won't be have, they won't have nothing to fight it against with the, Yeah, that's right. And it's really concerning that at the moment, all but two Australian states are socialist left um, governments. And these are the governments that are really pushing for further gun control and gun um, restrictions. And as we've seen through history, every time a socialist government or communist government's in place, the first thing they do is disarm a populace. Once a populace is disarmed, they target a group, like you said, an ethnic group, a minority, and they deal with them in the most horrific ways. The Khmer Rouge, uh, Night of a Thousand Tears. We've got all these examples in history of where a government takes over, removes the guns, and then wipes out an element they deem undesirable. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned you were a teacher. What kind of teacher are you? Uh, I'm an art teacher. So I teach in elementary school. Um, previously, I've been a classroom teacher where I teach a specific age group. But in the last two years, I've stepped into a specialist role where I teach art across all the year levels from prep, which is post-kinder, all the way through to grade six, which is just before high school. So what kind of art do you teach? Uh, Everything. So I've got a really broad curriculum where it's so gray that I can really interweave the things that I think children should be learning in art. So the history of art, techniques, um, prominent artists, all that type of stuff. So what got you interested in becoming a teacher in the first place? Uh, It's actually my wife. So I met my wife... uh, Later on in my, I've had a couple of careers. So I went through logging industries in forestry, 
Um, I was a draftsman working in a window and door manufacturer. So I was working at design plans on houses and things. Met my wife. She was a a teacher at the time. And that's when I just joined the Air Force, went through the Air Force, didn't want to be in that lifestyle anymore. We were so far away from my partner at the time who who I wasn't married to. Thought I'd found the right person who I wanted to marry. And I, I couldn't see that lifestyle of moving around the country all the time or every couple of years being what's good for us. So I left the Air Force, married my wife, who was a teacher, and I thought, well, either I go into medicine, which my background in the Air Force was, or I could become a teacher because we've got the same holidays and the same hours. And I landed on teaching. Um, I'm quite good with kids. Can't wait to have kids of my own someday. So I kind of just fell into it. How long have you been teaching for? Uh, this would be my sixth year. Oh, wow. So um, uh, how's it, how was it like being a teacher in the last three years? <laughs> uh, anyone who, who would be considered a, a cis white male in education who has traditional views, um, you either have to learn how to keep your mouth shut or speak at the right times. And I've been, become very good at doing that. The amount of stuff that's coming down the pipeline, which you would consider social Marxism that's being mandated by our state government, is horrendous. We're seeing the the gender confusion stuff coming out where kids can decide their own gender and be assisted by the school in transitioning to that gender without parents' approval. Um, the COVID stuff was another level where teachers didn't have to wear masks unless they were teaching. When they're teaching, they didn't have to wear masks, but all of the times they did. So they could be talking to 30 kids in a classroom. Then as soon as they leave the room outside in the fresh air, they had to put a mask on. Um, which I didn't. I chose not to wear a mask the whole time because I I classify my entire workday as teaching. We saw kids as as young as eight wearing masks. It it defied logic for uh, a workplace and an industry which bases bases itself on evidence based research. It wasn't being used, and it wasn't passing the common sense test either. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it ha- I I'm not a teacher or anything, but I saw like things on the news and everything. Teachers here, like, are not good. They were doing, like, literally doing the same thing, pushing all the Marxism stuff. I was like, how are kids learning this kind of stuff? And why are they learning it in the first place? Exactly. Um, Victoria recently pushed through a mandate in the last couple of years called Respectful Relationships. And like a lot of things that government puts forward, it's put in this neat little package of being a positive thing. Victoria has a very high domestic violence rate. So for the government's ability to try and target that, they brought in a mandated curriculum in schools where teachers actively teach children how to be respectful of one another, respectful towards women, respectful towards girls. It heavily targets boys as being the issue. Furthermore, it also includes a lot of that gender-diverse Marxist ideology around um, choosing your gender and identifying as other things, which shouldn't even be a part of it. If it's just about respect and targeting stopping domestic violence, we shouldn't be including those things. But there they are, and they're mandated. Teachers have to teach it. We don't have a choice. Hmm. So did you ever teach on, like, Skype in the last three years, or was just you were in the classroom most of the time? Uh, uh, we had nearly two years of online learning. Oh, so we how, had to... how was that? Uh, it you? was a um, – I couldn't differentiate home from work anymore, and it got to the point where I had my little office set up, and I actually had to close the door to stop seeing the laptop because I'd always go to it and and just work. I was working myself ragged during a time where I was already stressed out. I didn't like the way the world was going, yet we were expected to keep pushing this stuff every day. 
But there was a silver lining that came out of all of it. And this really opened my eyes up to how homeschooling is far beneficial than what any government school can achieve. We had kids sitting at home at a laptop watching maybe one or two teacher videos a day and doing maybe one worksheet for each learning area. So at max, kids maybe got two or three hours of learning a day. Our data shows now post-COVID that kids at home learning with their parents in short little stints got greater outcomes than what they do five hours a day at school, five days a week. Hmm. Interesting. That's, that's crazy. I don't, I don't understand how the teachers were doing teaching through Skype, because if I was, I graduated high school, I did all my education back in like the 2000 before the whole, like the uh, country became into shit, but I was wondering, I couldn't do it. I wouldn't be able to like focus. No. And we definitely saw that there was kids that, for the longest time would just opt out of it. And I don't blame them. Like home is not school and it shouldn't be that way unless you are homeschooled. Why would you listen to someone on a laptop when you're at home and you could have a wide idea of what you could do? I could go play my PlayStation. I could go outside. I could read a book. Why would I feel pigeonholed into listening to a teacher on a screen for five hours a day at home when it's my home? It's not my school. And the kids that did really well were the parents that took over. The parents who took on the role of teacher and made sure the kids were working or giving them options, they performed far better than the ones that just listened to the teacher behind the screen. So how would you describe your teaching style? Uh, I'm very big on building relationships with students. So there's that mutual respect there. I respect who they are as long as they respect me. I'm not one to push the the mainstream agenda of you sit down at your desk, you do as you're told, you do this, I grade it, I give it back. I'm very much about developing a a curriculum for individual students. So if there's a student who learns better from uh, visual learning, I'll give them the visual opportunity. If they need hands-on manipulatives, I'll give them hands-on manipulatives. Uh, One-on-one teaching in groups. It's not the stock standard, you're at your desks and you're watching the front and you repeat. It's not rinse, repeat, regurgitate. For me, it's really hands-on alongside the kids um, getting into the learning with them. Otherwise, I don't think it's effective. I have that take on it that education really needs to go back to its roots where kids would actively pick what they wanted to do in life and they'd go find an apprenticeship or they'd go find someone to learn from, an adult, whereas that's what I tried to replicate in the art room. I'm quite gifted in, in, in art in general. I've got quite a few skills in a lot of areas. So I try to pass those skills on to kids, teach them so that they can have a goal of it and explore it themselves or help them find what they're good at. So how's the education system in Australia? I know you kind of already answered it, but do you have any more on that, the education system in Australia? Uh, We have an all-time shortage of teachers. Uh, We've got so many teachers that that come from overseas working in Australia at the moment that are on a CRT basis. That CRT is like a replacement teacher for the day. So we've got schools that might have three or four teachers teaching positions they couldn't fill. So they replace them with these higher teachers who are getting paid hundreds of dollars more a day than the teachers who are working full time. They're getting travel paid for them by the government. They're getting accommodation paid for them by the government. They're they're even getting a degree of their food paid for by the government. So there's a divide starting to appear in the educational system in Australia where we've got the teachers who've done it tough during COVID, who've tried their hardest, who've been coerced to have the jab to keep their job, and now they're finding that these foreign workers that are coming in that are getting paid far more than what they are. 
Hmm. And that, again, I think is a ploy to try and cause divide in community again. I, I, I definitely see that ha- happening. Because that's what they only care about is to divide and conquer uh, people. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's even to the point where there are, and I have to be very careful about how I say this, there are aspects of the education department in this country from state to state where there are policies around social media, policies around what you say publicly, where a teacher, you really can't fart in public without losing your job. If someone wanted to take your job away, they could find a means to do it. Teachers are held at a higher level than what government officials are. We have government officials in in the halls of parliament swearing at each other, belittling each other, calling each other all the names under the sun. They don't even apologise for it. They're representing the country at whole. A teacher who makes a silly Facebook post from five years ago, that can be found out and they lose their job. You have a teacher who expresses their political views against what the government's pushing, they lose their job. We're in a time where we don't have free speech in this country. We have an implied freedom of speech. When you combine that with a socialist government, they define what your free speech is. Hmm. So if, like, say, for example, a teacher has an OnlyFans account, they can get taken out of their job? Yeah. Um, here's an example. Aussie Rules Football. There was a teacher who plays Aussie Rules Football, and this is a story they tell every school to be careful about what you do in public. Aussie Rules is very rough. You get in, you get in punch-ons, you're getting biffos on the field. It's like American football cross between hockey in a lot of ways. There's that punching. I've, seen, see I've seen yeah? Australian rugby. It's rough. Yeah, Aussie rules is a bit different from rugby. Um, it's almost like a combination of basketball, hockey, and football. Anyway, you get the you get the biffo on a bit. You hip and shoulder each other. You might throw a punch when the ref's not looking, that type of thing. Well, there was a prominent teacher at a school who was fired up in a game, wrongly or rightly. He decided to throw a punch at one of the opposition members. He was filmed doing so for that game, lost his job instantly. Hmm. Was he uh, not teaching? <laughs> That's for sure. Uh, there's like videos of teachers drinking alcohol or partying on the weekends. If those videos make it out, those teachers can can either be reprimanded or lose their jobs. Mm. Yeah, we're held to a higher standard than what society uh, society's leaders hold themselves to. And it's a complete opposite here. It's the politicians have more power than the teachers. Yeah, weird, right? Yeah, we have the we have no power either. We have a higher accountability with no power to back it up. Mm. So how do you handle a child's uh, behavioral issues in class if it comes up? So I'm from the, uh, the thinking that every behavior has, has a reason. And I'm from a, a town and a, a city that has a very high, low socioeconomic population. There's a lot of drugs, alcohol, domestic violence, abuse, and things like that. So if a kid comes in and they're displaying behavioral issues, there's a reason behind it. And you really need to understand the kid. That's why I'm so big on building relationships and understanding who they are as a person. You don't know what's going on in that little kid's life. They could have seen dad beat the ever-living shit out of mum over a burnt breakfast this morning. Um, mum could be living in a car with them. You don't know. These kids come in, and if they come in, they're tired, they're refusing, you've got to give them some kind of leeway. Uh, for example, in the past, I've had students that come in first thing in the morning, and they'll go find a corner of the room, they'll fall asleep. They'll hide under a table. And from what I know about how um, children's psychology, if a kid's hiding under a table to sleep, that's a red alarm bell for me that 
that kid doesn't feel safe. They haven't had any sleep at home and there's a reason they're doing it. So I let them do it. If they need an hour of sleep and they don't get to do art, so be it. Like that's their well-being at the end of the day that's more important than the curriculum we're teaching. So what steps do you take to ensure your students understand the lessons you provide to them? So what we use in Australia is called an instructional model. So there'll be the explicit teaching, which we would remember from school where the teacher's at the front of the room regurgitating information to the students. So I'll do that part. Then I'll transition into a, a we do where I do it with the kids so they can develop their concepts, understanding of what we're learning. And then they go off to do some independent practice where they go off to then practice what they've just learnt and they create their own art from what we've been learning about. So how do you build relationships with the parents of the children? Um, so pick up and drop off times are really important. I'll make myself known. I'll walk around the school at the end, the end of the day, have chats with parents as I see them. I'll often use a, a term which is called held in mind. So um, in front of the parents, I'll have a conversation with the kid. Um, let's just say Jimmy. Uh, Jimmy, I, I saw a, a Batman painting on the weekend that reminded me of the one you did in class. That was really good, mate. Well done. And parents hear and see that the teachers are actually really engaged in their children's learning. They're more likely to come on side and be trusting of the teachers as well. So what is one thing you like about teaching as one thing, what is one thing you dislike about teaching? Um, I'll start with the dislike. I'll get rid of the negative one first. <laughs> I dislike how indoctrinating it is by government. It doesn't matter if it's a right wing or a left wing government. There's far too much influence in government schools. I'm very much, if we are going to have government schools, we need to go back to the old way of doing things where teachers need a bit more power. Maybe like what happens in America, I know you have um, like uh, parent board meetings where you can help, they can help develop the curriculum. In Victoria, curriculum is completely mandated by the state. We don't have a choice in it. I think it would be more beneficial in our country if we could target our curriculum more to the demographic of the community that we're teaching, Mm -hmm. support them in more targeted teaching. That's my biggest gripe with it, the social Marxism that's affecting everyone, painting everyone with the same um, feather, tarring and feathering everyone with the same brush, really. What I do love about it is I love the light bulb moment when a kid absolutely understands something, something that they struggled with, something they had no idea about, and you can see that light bulb go bing, and they've got it, and they're so happy with themselves. I love seeing kids share their learning. Like I could be teaching about um, cartography, the art of and science of making maps and then kids start making connections to oh i made this map on on um minecraft and then the kid will come in next week with a a screenshot of their minecraft map and they'll be really excited to share it so there's definitely a love of learning which is in schools which i love but you definitely need the right teachers in in there to do that and foster that unfortunately with the government agendas around the world and policies being pushed i'm not too confident that every single teacher out there is the best fit and that's an unfortunate thing. So what are the challenging parts of being a teacher? Uh, challenging parts, again, the the government influence. I could talk about that all day. <laughs> another, another part of it is people think, oh, teaching, it's so easy. You get all these, you get, in Australia, you get 12 weeks of holidays a year. You, um, you get every weekend off. You finish school at, at 3.30, you go home. It's not quite like that. Um, like I said, if we do build these strong relationships with these students, we genuinely care about them and we take that work home with us. We take those worries home with us. If there's a student who we know might be um, living on tough times and, and really doing it rough, you carry that. You take that home and you stress and worry about these people that aren't even your kids. 
even the work you take home with you, the, the level of grading and marking that a classroom teacher would have to do in this day and age is ridiculous. It might as well be a 12-hour job. Hmm. So what is your biggest achievement as a teacher? Um, I don't know. I've, I think it's just those relationships that I build with kids. There's a story I've got where a student, when we had that remote learning, we'd have one or two days at school where we'd look after the kids who were from those at-risk groups that had to be at school because their home was unsafe. And the other days we'd be at home on the computer teaching. Well, I was at school on one of those two days when there was a student there and this student came up, gave me a high five and really missed me and was having this conversation with me. Wouldn't leave me alone all day. He was like this far away from me all day, just wanting to talk to me because he hadn't seen me in so long. I go home the next day, get a phone call from my principal to say that this particular student tested positive for COVID and that I should go get tested, which I didn't really care or worry about. Like it's the sniffles, right? Mm -hmm. This poor kid, because of what was going on in the world, was so adamant that I was going to die because he high-fived me. He was in tears all day to the point where I need to, his mum contacted me and I need to call him to reassure him that I'd be fine. So as, as messed up as that was, that showed me the impact that I have on kids learning that they were generally worried about me to the point where it was impacting them. So do you watch movies or shows? Yeah, yeah, all the time. So, um, so hold on. So if you could choose four favorite movies and shows in any genre, what would that be and why? Uh, okay, so first movie would be They Live. That is a John Carpenter classic, which everyone needs to watch. I think that depicts what's going on in society really well. Um, if you don't know, I'm a co-host of Conspiracy Theatre 3000 with Moral Bob and Andy Rouse, where we break down films. That's our first two episodes. Go and watch that. Fantastic. That's my first one. As a show, X-Files, loved that as a kid growing up with it. Ironically, there are a lot of things in the X-Files which were predictive program, which came into fruition. Um, Fringe was another one, very similar to X-Files, came out in the late thousands. Really good show. Uh, Stargate SG-1 was a big one. A lot of sci-fi stuff predominantly is what I like to watch. Um, the occasional horror. But yeah, generally sci-fi. What's your favorite horror movie? Uh, I'd have to go with The Relic, which is like a monster type of film. What's it about? It's about a museum of natural history and they get a relic in from Central America and the explorer who found it and came back with it was transformed into this quexacordal, like demonic creature along the way. So what are your favorite foods to eat? Uh, I'm really big three meat and veg type of guy. I'm three veg and meat type of guy. So steak, potatoes, all usual vegetables, that type of stuff. Uh, a big fan of oysters. So oysters kill Patrick. Uh, anything just basic foods. I really do like, I do try everything. I really like spicy foods. So like a lot of um, Latin American foods I like, um, Indian foods, um, Thai. Anything that's got a little bit of kick and spice to it is quite good. Do you drink alcohol? I do, yeah. What's your favorite alcohol beverages? Uh, Canadian Club and Coke. You <laughs> know, the Coke is quite poisonous. Uh, and Great Northern, which is an Australian beer. So who would it be if you could have coffee or dinner with any four historical figures? And what would you guys talk about? Oh, God. Um, Jesus Christ. To one, know he was a real person and to actually chat with him and find out what his experiences were. Because I'm a person who's developing faith 
But my biggest issue that I'm finding being conspiracy theorist is how much of scripture and how much of the gospel is accurate and hasn't been uh, manipulated by, by man and hasn't been used as a control mechanism. So it'd be great to hear it from the horse's mouth to speak to the guy behind it all. Uh, Jesus, uh, William the Conqueror would be another one, um, just by what he did in, in a historical aspect of being a lord of Normandy and then conquering Great Britain and the Magna Carta and all the things he put in place are just amazing historically. Uh, I'd have to put down Roy Orbison. He's one of my favourite artists of all time. His songs are so profound and he had such a a horrible life in what happened to his wife and children that unfortunately how he died is just it's so distressing to anyone who knows knows his music and him as an artist. I'd love to speak to him. Um, God, two more. That's really hard because there's so many people in history that that you want to speak to that you can't narrow down. Um, maybe it would be an actor. So one of my favorite actors is, oh God, I'd have to put down Russell Crowe. I have a chat with him. I think he'd just be a good chat, a guy that you can hang out and have a beer with. And last one I would put down to, I'd want to talk to Joe Rogan purely based on, oh, I was such a massive fan of his work. And in a lot of ways I still am. But I want really want to have a conversation with him to find out if he's controlled up or not. And I think you get that in a genuine conversation with him. Okay. If animals became as intelligent as humans and were accurately able to speak, what jobs would suit each which animals? The cats would be our overlords again, that's for sure. I agree with that 100 percent yeah, um, as you would have seen in this show. Um, yeah, they'd boss us around left, right, and center. They'd make us build pyramids again, that's for sure. Cats would do that. Dogs would quite easily become, you know, like your security guards. They'd just fit in that job so well. Um, horses, I think, would naturally, after we've domesticated them, they'd love to just take people in and out of town. They don't like being stuck in paddocks all day. Mm-hmm. Birds could naturally build, be a, a carrier pigeon system, but they're actually talking to you. That'd be quite fun. Um, yeah, great question. <laughs> so what genre of music do you enjoy? Um, I like blues uh, or America, early Americana, so the British Invasion type of stuff. Um, really, I, I'm a bit of everything, but I really like that blues, uh, instrumental, acoustic type of stuff. What are some of your favorite bands or artists you enjoy listening to? <laughs> uh, this is what people will hate. Just based on my age, Nickelback is actually one of my biggest biggest bands. <laughs> I've seen them live, <laughs> and they're very good. They are good live. It's surprising. Um, yeah, they came out at the right time when I was a kid. It was post-grunge. All their songs sounded the same. You weren't getting anything different. <laughs> but I'll give them credit where credit's due. They can write a good chorus and a good riff. I'll give them that. Um, Audio Slave, I really like um, Queens of the Stone Age. Um, Stone Temple Pilots, a lot of the type of stuff that was coming out of Seattle is quite good. Grunge, post-grunge type of scene. So what was first, what was the first ever concert you attended? Kiss. I went to the Formula One in Melbourne and Kiss were, were doing a stage show for that. Hands down the best stage show I've ever seen. They're amazing at what they do. So what hobbies do you enjoy doing when you're not podcasting or being a teacher? So I've got a 1965 Ford Falcon that I'm restoring. So I'm currently rebuilding that and hopefully have it on the road maybe next year. I've got a lot of work to put into it. So there's that. I like my art. So I draw, I sketch, I paint. Um, 
I'm getting into that self-sufficiency homesteading type of thing eventually for when my wife and I take over their family farm. So really getting into that. Um, I'm always fished. I've always hunted. And as a kid, I started a hobby called Warhammer, which is your paint and build little models, play tabletop games, bit of a nerd as a kid. So there's that. That's the thing that I go back to every now and again. So are you into video games? A little bit. I'd... I was for the longest time, and now I'm just stuck in this loop of always going back to Fallout 4 and playing that story again and again and again. So what was your uh, favorite video game, video game system growing up? Uh, I had a Sega Mega Drive as a kid playing Sonic, and then after that, it'd have to be the Ninten- Super Nintendo uh, playing Mario All-Stars. That was, that was a great one. What was your favorite uh, gaming character? Oh, gosh. Uh, I'd probably put it down to Sonic. That was just my formative years playing that game. What genre of video games do you enjoy playing? Uh, so like a Fallout or a Skyrim, those role-playing games, those open world types of things where you can make your own free choices. Ironically, <laughs> trying to find free choice in this world and you go to a game that allows it. So if you had to live in a world of a previous game you played, what world would it be? Oh, God. All the games I play are really dark, and I don't think I want to live in those worlds. <laughs> <laughs> Ironically, the world's kind of going that way anyway, so maybe I'd, I'd have a bit of inside knowledge. Fallout would be fun, um, even though you're eating like 300-year-old food and, and shooting monsters and creatures. At least it's freedom. Mm-hmm. So what's more critical to you, the action or the story? Um, I like the story of what's going on and how your interactions determine where the story will go. It's kind of like a life in that respect that if you find information about someone, like information, knowledge is power in a lot of ways. So if you find out information about someone you interact with, you have a completely different set of dialogue or ways that you would speak to that person. It's reflected in those games really well. So what effect do you think video games have on people regarding mental health? Is it positive, harmful or neutral? This is a weird one because Australia has really strict laws around on R-rated Um, games and things like that where for a long time i did used to think that you know these games are just creating little psychopaths and serial killers and you see it in kids today where the first thing i want to do is shoot at people i think it provides an entertainment outlet but if it's not being used in the correct way it does have negative impacts where if you've got kids who think it's okay to just shoot people in the face with sticks or toy guns you've got issues down the line for what's considered proper gun etiquette where if kids were actually raised and taught how to use firearms and taught how dangerous they can be, you need to respect it. You need to know how to use it. You need to be proficient with it. Then it would be different. And it's very noticeable. The country kids who have got that background and play video games, opposed to the kids who live in town, they've got a completely different mentality around firearms. Hmm, Interesting perspective. So what was the whole M, you kind of already explained the whole M-rated thing that the government had. What other things did they implement for the M-rated content regarding video games? Um, They had R. So if it ever went to an R, you could only only be 18 plus to buy it. Um, So that was like a lot of the Grand Theft Autos and stuff they tried to put on that. But they ended up being MA15 plus and parents would have to go in and buy these games for their kids that were younger. Um, Yeah, they're just really limiting what kids could actually access, which in, you know, if there's one thing the government's done right, maybe it's that. <laughs> so what do you think is the biggest problem with the gaming industry today? I think the biggest issue, and it's a consumerism issue, that I've got a PS2, 
I've got a PS3, I've got a PS4. You constantly have to upgrade the consoles, but you don't need to. I can go back and I can play any one of those PS2 games and they give me the same amount of enjoyment they did when I bought it. It's completely consumerism-based. And it's I think it's products in general society-wide. You're always expected to upgrade and get the new thing when there's no need for it. Like I could plug in uh, Nintendo 64 and it still works. Why would I need to get anything new? Mm-hmm. I agree with that. So yeah, going back to teaching and art, what's your opinion on the whole uh, chat GTP and the AI thing now that they're pushing regarding that you can do everything on that and regarding art, writing, music, all that stuff? I think it's going to put a lot of people out of work very soon. Um, you think about avid, like podcasters are using it at the moment to make cover art for their shows, right? In the past, that would have been filled by the person actively making it, pushing themselves and trying to use their skills, or they would outsource it. They'd ask a friend to do it for them. They may even hire someone to do it for them. That's gone now. It's a bit of a catch-22 as whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. I think the negative side of it is it's going to stifle creativity a hell of a lot. If you can just type in the exact parameters of what you want your picture to be or you want a video to look like or anything you're completely losing the creative streak that humans can create. Something else is making it for you. And it's almost like the uh, analogy of having um, the grocery store clerk being replaced by a self-checkout. Mm-hmm. You're taking away a job, you're taking away from society, you're taking away from people who are who are generally, that's their position in life and that's what they love doing, which rightly or wrongly, it's happening now. It's the, it's the double-edged sword of technology. It makes life easier, but at the same time makes society go further down the hill of what's what we're going into. Mm-hmm. Now, tell me about the three most influential people in your life and how they affected you positively or negatively. Uh, my dad, definitely. Positive influence on me. He, My dad is a, a jack-of-all-trades, traditional Aussie bloke, uh, the typical masculine guy who doesn't like to express his feelings. Had every moment for me. He was a shift worker. Like We'd have to be quiet during the day while he slept, but... As soon as he was awake, he had all the time in the world for us kids. He takes fishing, takes camping, takes hunting. Even though I had different interests in a lot of my formative years, like I was very much keeping my head in a book, wanted to do artwork. Um, it was a real push for me to go into, um, to take part in dad's hobbies, which I ended up loving in the end anyway. But he didn't push me. Um, he gave me the opportunities to, to um, develop a love for it, which I really appreciate. So there's that. That's a positive light. Negative influence would be our state premier, Daniel Andrews, who for some goddamn reason is in control again. He's got another four years at the helm and God, I don't know what's going to happen to this state long-term. I'm in a position where as a state teacher, I'd absolutely love for him to visit our school just so I could give him a very politely worded conversation about how he's ruining the state. Um, And another positive influence on my life is definitely my wife. Um, it sounds very corny, but she's definitely my other person, that counterpoint that I needed in my life. And there's things that I'm doing now that I would never have dreamt of in my life, in my wildest dreams. And she's all part of that. So what is the biggest lesson you've learned in your life so far? <sighs> biggest message I've learned in my life so far. Nobody's coming to save you. The only person that can save you is yourself. Hmm. What was the worst moment of your life and how did you, ha- did you handle it? Uh, my worst moment of my life, I'm I'm happy to say I've lived a pretty privileged life up until the recent couple of years and whether people think this is negative or, 
or think of me differently. The hardest part of my life was by far the COVID vaccine mandates. I was in a state where essentially every job was mandated and as a government teacher, we just had to have it. Um, I went through legal avenues, everything under the sun to try and prevent it from happening. And it was impacting my marriage, everything along with that. And I was put into a situation where I was coerced into doing something I didn't want to do. And every moment of the day afterwards, for the rest of my life, I will regret doing it. It is what it is. It's happened. And now I just have to try and manage it. And hopefully my health isn't impacted detrimentally long-term. Hmm. What is something people seem to misunderstand about you? Um, people see me, they see the beard and they see, especially that they hear the accent and they think that I'm a stock standard Aussie bloke that can't string two words together, <laughs> doesn't have an understanding of comprehension, feelings, anything like that, where I'm a really, I'm a big open book. I wear my heart on my sleeve. I love researching. I love understanding things. And people tend to pigeonhole you based on your appearance. And people see either the beard and they think, oh, this guy's just an Aussie bogan, doesn't know what he's doing. He's, an, he's a, a chad. Or they see the glasses and they think you're a complete nerd. <laughs> I think everyone's a little bit of everything. So what are some, some things you've had to overcome in your life? Um, so the understanding that the world isn't what we perceive it to be and that the way we perceive things are the way that certain powers or structures in society present to us to make us think it's that way. To come to terms that the government doesn't actually have your best interests at heart, that's a big dynamic changer. So how did you and your wife meet each other? Uh, through a mutual friend. So one of her friends put me in contact with her and we met that way. What is something like about her? Uh, she's very straightforward. <laughs> she's she's one of the very few people that will call me out on my bullshit if I'm, if I'm being stupid. She'll call me out, which is great. She keeps me in line. <laughs> So I know you don't have any kids right now, but what important lessons do you want your kids to learn in the future when you have some? Um, I want them to be critical thinkers and not the critical thinkers that, that the education system wants you to believe it is, where they think critical thinking is just thinking outside the box when it comes to learning. I want critical thinkers that analyze every single thing that's presented to them. The why, the where, the who, the purpose behind it. Why is this... Why am I being taught this and how does it benefit me? I want learners like that. I want kids who are active in the actual world. Like I'm a big one. I don't want a lot of screen time for my kids when we have them. I want them outside. I want them enjoying the world. I want them planning food. I want them barefoot on the ground. I want them running around. I want them to have a, a childhood that I had. I don't want them to have the, the current status quo. What kind of childhood did you, childhood did you have? Um, Americans liken it to the latchkey kids where both my parents worked and I was the youngest of three and there's a big, a big age gap between me and my sisters. I was the baby boy in the family where essentially we'd get dropped off at home. My sisters would babysit me the whole time, really, which was a, a little shit of a kid. I'd run around, do whatever the hell I wanted, um, riding bikes around, go fishing whenever I wanted to hang out with mates. It was, it was a different time. Mm -hmm. So do you believe that the actions we do now will affect generations of kids going forward? Yeah, I think it's starting to now. It's kids in my generation and my wife's 
when they became teenagers, they were really risque, um, very sexualized, and you still see that in our generation now. Um, everything's driven by sex, the dating apps, the sex apps. That's the way things are. But the current generation coming through high school that I'm seeing, there's a big, big percentage of those that are quite conservative. They're very um, cognizant about covering their body up. They're really worried about sexualized behavior and not in a left-wing, I need permission type of way. It's about respect for themselves and respecting other people. There seems to be this dynamic where the social Marxism is being pushed so hard, it's actually causing kids to flip against the system, um, which is a great thing. And I think that's only going to snowball and, and keep escalating in percentages of people who don't align with what the government's pushing out. So what is the best and worst job you've had? Uh, best job would still be teaching. Um, how I managed to find my way to that and love it is still a surprise to me. The worst job I ever had was I was a maintenance worker at McDonald's. It was my very first job. Um, loved the experience of it and it taught me a lot of things. But cleaning a McDonald's store out at 3 o'clock in the morning each day, seven days a week, um, and having to deal with all the drunken people out on the streets as an 18-year-old kid was very eye-opening. How, do you, how would you define happiness? Uh, happiness is, I think it's a state, of, a state of being. I don't think you necessarily always have to feel happiness. If you don't feel any stress or any worries and you're just going about your business, I think you're currently living in happiness. Mm-hmm. Happiness is being around loved ones. It is doing the things that you enjoy without having to worry about tomorrow. And I think at any point we start worrying about tomorrow or the next bill or will I get this promotion at work, you're not actively happy. You're stressing and worrying about things that may never eventuate. So you're better off just living in the moment and good things will come to you. What is the best piece of advice you've ever received? My best piece of advice, no job is below you. Um, My high school teacher told me that upon graduating. And I think that really rings true where I've had multiple jobs throughout my life based on my situation on, on how I was going financially or how my relationships were, what have you. That put me in a really good position where I've got a wide breadth of experience that I could step into multiple jobs and I could excel. I know that. Adversely, I've got lots of mates and lots of friends who got into specific job roles or specific trades and they won't get out of bed for anything less than $100,000 a year. So they could lose a job tomorrow and they'll think every other job in the classifieds is below them. They won't go and work in that field. So what do you think the world will look like in five years? Um, What I think it looks like and what I hope it looks like are very different. What I think it's going to look like is we're going to be well and truly into the swing of the 2030 agenda. I can see a lot more of this ramping up of climate type of lockdowns and a lot of this greenhouse gas um, prevention where we're going to see people pushed out of regional areas to live in these 15-minute cities. I think we're going to see deliberate attacks on fertile growing areas of the world like we're seeing in the States right now. Essentially, that ground's been nuked chemically for the next 20, 30 years, whatever food you grow in there, you're going to pass it on to yourself. With that 20 or 30 gender, it's not going to be a case of you can't opt out of it. If your entire environment, your home, your region is completely decimated, you've got no choice to go to a mega city. Mm-hmm. I think that's what's coming. What I hope happens, 
I hope people get a little bit of a kick up the ass and realize what's going on and they take matters into their own hands. They pull away from the system. They try to be more self-sufficient and they stroke, they slowly strangle that base system and make sure it doesn't eventuate. So questions to end the episode. What is giving you hope right now? Uh, what's giving me hope is all the friends and connections I've made. Ironically, I'm making more friends stateside and across the world in the truth or a freedom community. Um, it's very few and far between in Australia at the moment, but I think that just by being exposed to and having conversations and developing relationships with and friendships with these people, that that's going to help me and I can be that catalyst for other people in my own community in the future and we can really get the ball rolling. What are three other podcasts you recommend to my listeners and why? Uh, OBD, BM, Our Big Dumb Mouth. It's hands down the best podcast out there as far as I'm concerned. It's a combination of a new show, a comedy show. It's a, I haven't stopped listening to it since the start of COVID when I first got onto it. Must listen, go give it a listen, guys. Um, I think that Monday Night Master Debaters with Matt and Ryan is probably hands down one of the best panel shows around. It's fantastic. Uh, you get a, a wide variety of different people coming on, different opinions, different ideas. It's the best way to find new podcasts to listen to. Um, fantastic show. And my third one would have to be Deborah Gets Red Pilled. Um, the dynamic that Adam and Deborah have by having your mother-in-law on a show and and then Chad, who came into the show later on, has having a friend that's got a similar mindset. They've got a really great show and a great dynamic that I think filled a niche that wasn't there originally. And you can definitely see in the way that podcast is growing and it's developing that it's a show that's going to go far long term. Hmm. So if you were given five to 10 minutes to speak to the world, what would you want to say to them? Oh, God. Um, recognize that the control structures that are in place are not there for your benefit. And you need to take your own health, your own well-being, your own life, everything you are into your own hands. We need to go back to simpler living. Simple doesn't mean bad. Simple is a better way of living. If you don't have to overcomplicate things, we should be doing it. The level of technology we have as a society now, we should be going through a brand new renaissance of, of creativity and exploration and freedom. And it's got the complete opposite. Surfs in medieval Europe had more downtime than what we have today. And it's in a lot of ways you can blame it all on technology. And lastly, where can people find you online? Uh, you can find me on Missing the Point on Instagram, um, your Missing the Point podcast on all usual podca uh, podcatchers. You can find Conspiracy Theatre 3000 on its own RSS feed with Andy and Moral, uh, Andy Rouse, Moral Bob, and myself. And you can find on Spotify the Homeroom Educating Educators by Educational Podcast with Kayla. And you guys can find me on uh, YouTube, uh, Rumble, uh, Twitter, and Instagram at Hawkett Podcast, all lowercase in one word. And that's it for me. Thank you so much, Drew, for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me, man. Hey, everybody. It's closing time. You don't got to go home, but you can't stay here.